Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and The Economist. I'm Michelle Klieger, The Economist. And I'm Peter Kanjoyan, The Grower. Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. Today's episode of The Gate, Michelle and I are going to do something a little different. Recently, in in the month of September, there was an an interesting Washington Post article, and it was titled, Here's Why Your Food Prices Keep Going Up. Michelle and I have both read the article and both agree there's a lot of timely information in the article. So, Michelle, I think what we've agreed to do is um, we're going to basically go through this informative article, and its focus is largely on the economic side of things and food prices. So you and I have agreed that it might be a a comfortable way to go about discussing this if we consider you the expert as the economist, and I will serve as an interviewer in, in, in sorts. We can start off, I will read a paragraph or a message from the article, and then ask you a question. Exactly. All right. So there are several subheadings in this article. The one that we're going to start with is the first subheading. And that topic is, here's why your food prices keep going up. Actually, that's the title of the article itself. And it's what attracted both of us to read the article and share a few thoughts and make notes on our own. So, Michelle, I'll, I'll read a paragraph or two and then get us going with, with a, a question. Quote, expect to see higher food prices in the last quarter of this year in a number of grocery categories. After that, some relief is likely. Before the pandemic, most people may not have thought much about where their food came from, how far it traveled, or how it was produced. Certain industry phrases have underscored rising grocery bills over the past 18 months. Phrases such as turbulence and volatility, unprecedented times. But one of the biggies is supply chain disruption, unquote. Michelle, what brought you and me together over almost two years ago was a shared concern over how the COVID pandemic was going to disrupt our supply chain. So for me, when I read this phrase in the opening paragraph of this article, it caught my attention and I certainly wanted to read on. So let's have opening comment from your perspective as an economist the supply chain disruption, we're having it confirmed now in, in a, uh, a widely read article. You and I have shared this concern. We've talked about it for over a year now in our episodes. So make some introductory comments. Yeah. In the beginning of the pandemic, I think that the changes we saw were very consumer facing. We saw the unprecedented times. We're all in the grocery store, right? You could walk into a grocery store and it looked like a natural disaster had hit. And this went on for several weeks. So that would be the first one, right? That we, we became used to seeing these empty shelves in a way we weren't used to. We sought out different places to buy food so we could buy it more outside or have it delivered as to avoid crowds in grocery stores. 
And so there were a lot of changes that we saw in those places that were directly how we interacted with the supply chain or with the retailers. Beyond that, most consumers didn't understand what was happening in the supply chains and how where food comes from and how it gets to them and the inputs that are required to make it and all of those pieces that that we talk about as growers and economists. And now that we're a year and a half into the pandemic and there's pretty much a shortage of everything and there's serious concerns about what's going to be available for the Christmas season, I think that consumers are now taking their knowledge to the next level and starting to ask, why are prices going up? How does freight work? Why does it matter that there are 45 container ships sitting off of the coast of um, California waiting to come in? Because this has gone on longer, it's not just how we interact with the supply chain. It's now what is really going on behind the scenes that things haven't just gone back to normal. And I think that's why this article is interesting for people um, and, you know, why it was published, as well as, you know, we're going to talk about how quickly food prices are going up. And that's a major concern for a lot of households. Another reason that I think this topic is so important, Michelle, m- many of our messages over this past year, after COVID kind of settled in and, and we, you know, got over the proverbial hump, we found, we were pleasantly surprised that many of our growers had banner years and, and did well. And this past spring was the, the first full spring after operating in a pandemic. Um, the spring of 2020 was, was really unsettled because the pandemic was just set, setting in. Um, but I think it's important we've applauded uh, our small and medium-sized growers. They've done well. They've been creative, resilient. They've moved in, in, with the punches and all. But I'm now thinking that we don't want to have a false sense of security and that as this discussion unfolds, inflation is going to become our main topic for this episode. And it's ready to rear its ugly head. And it's going to affect growers and how they operate and the economics of their businesses. So the message here is there's this big, ugly monster that's not in our control. And it's about to affect how growers operate. So in terms of costs and and shipping and all. So maybe now is the first place to define inflation before I refute some of the points or discuss dive deeper into some of the points. So inflation in general is is prices going up over time. Your money is worth less today than it will be in 10 years from now. And so this is why When I talk to my grandmother, she paid a quarter for a babysitter and I pay $10 for an hour. That is inflation. Your money doesn't go as far as it used to. There are some places that inflation at a controlled rate, at a low rate, is ideal. One of the reasons that a 30-year mortgage works is because bought a house and locked in your mortgage today, as you either make more money in your life, which most people expect that they will make more money, the percentage of their monthly mortgage of their total paycheck will go down. 
Also, as inflation goes up, your payment stays the same. And so the value of that payment is smaller over time. So in effect, by locking in a rate now, in 30 years from now, you're paying a lot less in real terms than you are today. There are some places that inflation is important. And the truth is we really want an inflation rate of 2 to 3% on a national level. In general, inflation will go higher than that when we have too much money or the same dollars chasing not enough goods. So that could mean that everybody got had a lot more money and they want to buy more things and they don't exist. Or it could be that there's a shortage of things. And the reason that I point this out is because there's a lot of debate right now and whether the current inflation we're seeing is transitory, which would mean that it's because of the reopening, right? We had a lot of people in or the whole world in lockdown. And so a lot of people didn't spend money on travel and eating out and they were able to keep their jobs. And so there's a surplus of savings. And now all of those people are trying to spend their money at the same time. So there's a lot of money, but also because of the slowdown and because of shutdowns, goods weren't produced at the same levels. The airlines scaled back the number of flights. So now there's a lot of people trying to get on very few flights. And so if that is true, if it is transitory, once production increases or a new normal is found in those service industries, the inflation should go away. Since the 70s, the last time inflation really spiked, that rate has gone down significantly, which is why we see interest rates so low right now. We actually are struggling to get the national inflation to that 2 to 3%. So either this is transitory and we're going to go back to those low inflation numbers that we've seen in the last few decades, or there's something changing in the economy and we are going to see inflation push up and then governments and central banks are going to have to adjust. Hmm. So there's this place where there's an ideal level of inflation and then there's hyperinflation, which would be double digits or higher, which really is a huge problem in terror. That's really interesting. Now, you brought me back for, uh, you, a memory of mine and anyone listening who's of my generation, I'm 67 years old. Uh, my wife and I bought our first house in 1983 down in Maryland outside of the Beltway. And Michelle, our interest rate was over 13%. So anyone of my generation can harken back to those days. Anyone younger than me, all I'll say is count your blessings. Well, and then just for the farm sector specifically, inflation and the lack of fixed interest rates in the late 70s, early 80s that caused the farm credit crisis in the 80s is a very painful point for anybody that was a, a grower then or even children of growers just watching that unprecedented level of bankruptcies. So your experience exceeds your age in that you go back and historically can respond to my experiences. That's really cool. Hey, you just covered two basic economic principles that I, I want you to just separate for us a little bit. You're talking about inflation, but I heard a little supply and demand in some of your comment. Are those two principles, do they belong in the same sentence? Are they separate, related? They can be related. 
So they can be related. And one of the influencers of demand is your income. And so if you have more money, you will demand more goods. When more goods are demanded, the um, price will go up, right? People are signaling that they will pay more for this item. And when the price goes up, it encourages more suppliers to bring in to bring more production online, which will then create a new equilibrium. So in one of the places that I was reading yesterday, there was a record farm sale. An acre of land in Iowa went for $26,000. And the one of the people commenting on it suggested that with farm prices being $26,000 an acre for this premium land, if you were considering selling your land in the next few years, you are likely to sell it now. Like that people are looking, there's so much demand for farmland right now that it is pushing the price up. That $26,000 price tag is enough to encourage new people to sell their land that might not have been considering it before. Um, so when the, so that would be one of the places that inflation is pushing it up, that there's more demand for these goods and we're looking for our new equilibrium. Another fun story that I double checked this morning and kind of wanted to share was there was a meeting in the White House in January of 2014 with the National Economic Council. And I think the cute version of the story goes something like, we don't remember what we were talking about, but President Obama was trying to figure out how much to give his daughters for the tooth fairy. And the Dental Association actually keeps really good trends on how much the tooth fairy pays on average per year. And he pulled his room, the room, and it was about $5 a tooth, anywhere from between $5 and $20 per tooth. And the boomers got about a quarter per tooth, per tooth. And so if you adjusted that based on average inflation over time, that would be about $3. And so today... And so the question is, if it should be $3 today, why is it $5 or even 20 This gets into there are other factors that influence inflation and our buying decisions than necessarily what is available. And the reason is because over that time, parents made more money and they had more disposable income. So the cost of your everyday life went down and you had more free income and you wanted to give it to your children. And so this this was a way to transfer money. On the same point, the guy that gave his daughter $20 did it because the tooth fairy came and he didn't have time to go to the bank and he only had a $20 bill. And so there are these other factors that that influence inflation. And then the biggest one when we do get to that lot that hyperinflation is generally loss in faith in a government. The U.S. dollar is backed by the U.S. government. If there was suddenly a huge concern about the U.S. government's stability, that money would be worth less. And so on this end, the money is worth less because there's less trust in the government and whether that money will be worth something in the future. So you want to spend it all today. And when you try to spend it all today, the prices go up and it creates this very negative, positive feedback loop. 
Another point that I just want to make on generally understanding inflation is that we talk about when we figure out inflation each month, economists are looking at a broad basket of goods. So it's everything from how much does a banana cost to an average house cost to durable goods like an airplane. And how have those prices changed from month to month or year to year? The piece of the basket that is most volatile is called the core price index, and that is the food and the energy. So food and energy prices go up and down so much that they often will cause the overall inflation to, to move rapidly. And so to get a more realistic view of actual inflation, we often strip out food and energy, which is super helpful for everybody else. But for the farming sector, we care about the cost of food and energy. And so our sector tends to be more volatile anyway and discussed separately. Okay, thank you. I have a personal experience that's uh, playing out in real time. Uh, when you mentioned uh, 10 seconds ago, energy and farming and, and growers, and how important it is to us. Uh, this comment harkens back to the supply chain disruption that we opened the episode talking about, Michelle. So um, my research greenhouse in my backyard, I built in um, 2020. During that first heating season, I didn't get the silly greenhouse covered until after Thanksgiving. So my first heating season in, in 2020 was partial. Last year, 2021, my first full heating season the uh, propane cost itself uh, increased over 50% year to year. So not only was I going from a partial heating season the year before to last year a full heating season, but the propane cost from the first to the second season went up significantly. That uh, prompted me this past spring to bite the bullet and purchase an energy curtain for the greenhouse so I paid for it in full in, uh, in June, um, got everything set up with plenty of time, I thought, for shipment and, and delivery so that it would arrive here in August. And then I was planning on installing it in September, and uh, I turned the heat on in the greenhouse here in Massachusetts a week ago. So I'm on my 2022 heating season now. Um, energy curtain hasn't been shipped. It's due to be shipped this week. It'll take a week to get here. So it'll be mid-October that it arrives. I've got research projects that I thought I would delay their start. Now that's that's holding off on my income. So I'm, I'm saying, okay, I'm going to, uh, I won't charge and get these research projects going because I need to get the energy curtain installed. It's inside the greenhouse and I need empty greenhouse to work on ladders uh, for a, a month or so to install it by myself. Uh, so I came to the realization last week that I cannot afford to not have the income coming in. So I decided I have to go through another heating season with uh, the, the higher energy cost and a relatively inefficient greenhouse environment just to keep the, the income going in. So, so as a case study and as an example of what you and I talk about, this supply chain disruption has is affecting how I operate, and it's going to cost me money 
that it took so long for this these materials to arrive at the manufacturer and then be assembled and shipped out to me. So it's a, a real life case of of how our growers, greenhouse growers and farmers need to be resilient. And sometimes if something like this is so late in the associated increase in cost, that can be backbreaking and uh, it can be significant. So uh, let me let me move on, Michelle. I'm going to read another paragraph and let you uh, jump in on it. Quote, food producers have struggled with shortages, bottlenecks and transportation, weather and labor woes, all of which have caused food prices to rise. The end is not in sight. Inflation at the wholesale level climbed 8.3% last month from August 2020, the biggest annual gain since the department started calculating the number in 2010. Those prices are passed on to consumers. Meat, poultry, fish, and eggs are up 5.9% over last year and up 15.7% from prices in August 2019 before the pandemic. Go ahead and uh, make more comments. It's a lot of factors that are pushing those food prices up. And it says that. So it starts with shortage, bottlenecks, and transportation, weather, and labor. Agriculture is susceptible to all of those, especially because the categories that they picked are meat, poultry, fish, and eggs. So they're all animal proteins. And animal proteins now have to account for labor and feed and transportation. The biggest cost to a livestock producer is the feed. And when we have weather challenges, we are seeing increased spikes in feed. Over the summer saw more demand for gas and transportation than we saw some of those corn prices recover because of ethanol demand. Upward pressure on your feed prices. You had China's livestock pig sector recovering. So they're purchasing a lot of soybeans and you have severe weather events in a lot of places, which was limiting the amount of feed available. All of those are pushing feed prices up, which generally account for 80% of the livestock production. So that is a huge place where we are going to see that cost passed along. On top of that, or place that's going to cause inflation, On top of that, transportation is the next important factor that I would want to point out. And there's such a high demand from American buying goods from China and or Asia that the container ships are not available in China to ship those goods back to the United States. And so there's a lot of competition to get on those containers. And so this is one pushing food prices, pushing prices up for everything that needs to be transported, because if you have a high value electronics, they're going to pay a lot more money to ship that TV to the United States than potentially the value of shipping potash from Eastern Europe. And so you're now competing with other industries. And so that is putting pushing transportation costs up. It's also encouraging all of the containers to go back to China to be filled and shipped back with stuff. And so if you're trying to use containers in the United States, the average container is more expensive, which is, again, pushing prices up. And then the third one is labor. And whether it's lack of available labor or higher prices for labor, both of those 
are a challenge for producers of all levels. And, you know, we've seen limited wage inflation over the last 30 years. We have a declining unemployment rate, but yet we still have 8 million people fewer working than before the pandemic. So there are people that have dropped out of the labor force. Fewer laborers, the ones that are working, are able to get more money. Um, And so you have these three places where animal ag in particular has higher feed costs, there's higher transportation costs, and there's higher wages or lack of employees, which is pushing all of these prices higher. Now, I'm not saying that they don't exist in the greenhouse space or in field production, but it's much more acute in the livestock, especially because you have to transport the animals to be processed and you want to do that in a timely fashion and you don't want them to get too big and you end up with all of these other concerns that you don't want the quality of the animal to decline as you're getting paying more to produce raise the animal. Well, the transportation that you spent some time on, it affects all of us. And I have an experience that that I'd like to share here. Back in August, I drove from Boston to Denver to do some mountain climbing and uh, drove out and back. And I I love the drive. Here's my take, Michelle. As there's a little more and more construction on our interstate highways, um, on a trip like that, I had many, many places where I came to a stop on a two-lane interstate for traffic backup. And I think any of us can close our eyes and picture ourselves, place ourselves in that setting. There are also times when it's the other direction of the highway that's experiencing one of these traffic jams. And it's usually when I'm heading one way and there's traffic stopped on the other way, the opposite direction, that it hits me, all the trucks, when you see stopped traffic on the highway, it's all tractor trailers. There are hardly passenger cars. I'm exaggerating here, but there are times when when I'll actually do some counting of how many trucks versus passenger cars, and and it can be 80% truck. So, so much of our goods and services or goods are transported on, on our highways. Now, As I'm driving, I get terribly frustrated on a two-lane interstate when I'm approaching an incline or a hill, and there are tractor trailers ahead of me, and if one of them, the last one in line, pulls out into the passing lane going uphill, and everyone knows that everything's going to slow down to 50 miles an hour as these tractor trailers are hauling uphill, I have choice words for the driver and say, get back into the the travel lane, Let, let me go by. Then I put on my other hat. Five minutes ago, I'm saying I'm waiting for my energy curtain to be delivered. So all you passenger cars, get out of the way and let this truck get to me from Cincinnati to Boston. So it's really it's it's uh, interesting and amusing how these things affect our everyday lives and our businesses. Let me read another paragraph and then quote. The Bureau of Labor Statistics on Tuesday reported an additional overall food price increase of 0.4% in August of this year compared with July, after larger increases in recent months. Cisco, one of the nation's biggest food distributors, showed food inflation at 10.2% on its most recent quarterly report. Increases that are passed along to restaurants and to the restaurant's customers in turn. 
unquote. So you've, you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but the point here is that as inflation settles in, most of the time it's being passed along. And if I, I'm just going to read the, the last paragraph before I let you take, take, take it over. Quote, history shows us that price adjustments are more likely to be accepted in the market when industry-wide and broad-based input cost inflation occurs. And that's the environment we see today, unquote. I had a few thoughts about that specific paragraph and did a little bit of homework. And so I did pull the average food inflation since 1968 this morning, and it is about 4% per year. There were four years in the double digits, and they were all in the 1970s. So food inflation goes up and down. So I think that, first of all, that 10% number from the Cisco is a little bit misleading. I'm concerned that Cisco is not just showing the price of the food, right? So if we're talking about food inflation, like, yes, the point of how much it costs to get to you is important. But I also think it's important to remember that Cisco also has transportation and wages built in too, right? So you have the farm transportation and wages, and now you have the distribution transportation and wages. So that I think is important. Another one is I'd be curious to see how the food inflation varies by sector. And the reason I pull this out is because Cisco sells to a lot of restaurants and I feel like they use a lot of vegetable oil in all the fried things we eat in restaurants. And we did see that during the pandemic that there was this huge overproduction of vegetable oil because think of all those stadiums that aren't serving fried food or all the bars or all the cafeterias and we fry less food in our houses. So there was a huge decline in demand for vegetable oils. And right now the price of vegetable oil in the last few months has gone up by about 50%. And this comes one from that reopening of we are seeing more people demand vegetable oil. And two, there is a shortage of labor in Malaysia and other palm areas to harvest that vegetable oil. And so now we have a reduction in this one specific category. We have a huge amount of inflation. Kind of wondering of how much is that palm oil fitting into the Cisco cost versus how much of it is their broad categories. So how much of it is the meat that we talked about has a lot of reasons for extra costs and palm oil or vegetable oils, which are facing a lot of inflation versus the average item. And then that difference of what we buy in a grocery store versus what we buy in our house. So I definitely think that, look, understanding the basket would be more important and maybe make that 10% number slightly less scary. And then to the point about industry-wide and broad-based inflation being more acceptable, that absolutely makes more sense, right? If you were told that your curtain can't get to you and it's more expensive and you're hearing this everywhere, right now we're in a place where we understand. We see the stores empty. We have experienced those price premiums. And so we're willing to accept it everywhere. We understand that right now the price of everything is going to go up and there's this acceptance. And so companies are able to pass that cost along. And one of the topics that I actually taught last week, the elasticity of demand is how much are consumers willing to accept a higher price? 
So if the price of that basket of French fries goes up by 10%, is there going to be a 10% reduction in demand? Is there going to be a 1% reduction in demand or a 50% reduction in demand? How sensitive are we to price? And when consumers are really sensitive to price, the company has to eat more of that increase in cost. And when the consumers are less sensitive to price, the company is able to pass it along. So right now, while we are expecting prices to go up because we understand all of these things are going on, less sensitive to price and we're less sensitive to price changes in all categories. And so companies will try to pass on more right now while there's an appetite, as opposed to when it's just one item, right? If there was just a fishing shortage and the price of fish went up a lot, we'd all switch and eat more chicken because fish went up and we're not really comfortable with the price. All right. So as you and I have different perspectives of looking at things, here's what I took from that last paragraph of this article. Everyone else is passing along the price increases. I, the grower, why can't I? Why do I have so much trouble? And if I go back a few episodes when Bridget Behe from Michigan State was uh, joined us as a guest, and you titled that episode appropriately, It's Our Game to Lose, the kinds of things that Bridget and her colleagues are sharing with us from marketing and business perspective is, it's not our responsibility to absorb these price increases that are being dropped in our laps. It might not be that I, as a grower, can increase across the board all of my offerings, but I sure well better find some items that I can raise the price on so that I'm not the one who's swallowing all of this price increase. So for me, that's what I'm hearing. Okay, inflation is here. We're going to have to deal with it. It's not going away it's not going to be sooner rather than later. It's, it's going to be here for a while. You're, it's not enough for us to just say, okay, we made it through the pandemic. We're still here. We need to be able to shift gear and deal with the inflation now so that our profit margin isn't eroded at a time where we need to secure it so that people like I can buy the energy curtain to be more efficient and produce into the future. So that's my final comment. Go ahead and uh, uh, you can bring this episode into a close. I actually think that I am going to say tune in for the next episode um, because I think that you're right. Bridget Behe is correct. Like we need to talk about what we're doing more and explain to the consumers why things are more expensive and whether it's our inputs are better are more expensive or we have something better to offer. Those are two things that I think need to be part of the conversation. However, with some of this inflation, I think that it's a big opportunity for the greenhouse growers and the small and medium growers. And that's where I want to dive into. And I think that we should do it on the next episode. Sounds perfect.